Hi, and welcome to Bread. As the year comes to a close, we're celebrating Advent, that part of the church's calendar where we look forward to and prepare for Jesus's birth. Over these next weeks, allow yourself to be still. Hear again the wonderful news of Christmas and have Jesus meet you with all his hope, joy, peace, and love. My name is Raul, if we haven't met before, and I oversee the community outreach stuff here at Bread, and it's a lot of fun. I get to do it with some incredible people, and um, you're going to hear me talk a little bit about what we did on Wednesday and just how special that was. But today is the final Sunday service, meaning that we are wrapping up our Advent series and Advent is that time of year when we celebrate Jesus' arrival with uh, kids' plays and carols and deers and Santa hats. And as we end this time, we look at the scene that takes place in the barn and field, the scene that the kids played out last week. This scene comes out of Luke. And Luke is unlike any of the other Gospels. The other Gospels are more like biographies, but Luke is interesting in that he combines biography with history. He is interested in dates, in chronology, in eyewitness accounts, and in written documents. And Luke's aim is to provide an exact account. He's, his aim is to provide exact information about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the birth of the church. Whereas Mark is like the Michael Bay of the Gospels, quick-paced and action-packed, Luke is a Scorsese. He is slow, dramatic, and grand. Luke wishes to invite you and I into this grand narrative and see ourselves as players in this continuous story. And so from this story, I want to show that you and I are destined for joy. But before we get into that, let's hear the story again. Jen is going to come up and read the story. Let's give it up for Jen. And as we listen, let's imagine ourselves in the story. You can close your eyes as she reads, just so you're not distracted. And imagine yourself in it. What do you see in your mind's eye? What stands out to you? What do you feel? And so let's take a deep breath and listen and imagine this play out. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Quirinius when the was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were, the same came to her to give birth. And she gave birth to her first son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day, born in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherd told them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them to her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. Amen. Thanks. Think back to a time when you've been bullied. How did that feel? If I could briefly define bullying, it is making someone feel small. And often it's a self-repeating pattern, isn't it? Bullied people, bully, and so on. And I've been bullied, and I've done the bullying. And I'll never forget one time I made the biggest kid in school feel small. He was twice my height, he was stocky, and a lot of the kids were intimidated by him. And during lunch, I thought it would be funny to throw a milk pouch at him. And I say milk pouch because um, our school got rid of milk cartons. Anybody else? Yeah? It like came in a little bag. It was so bizarre. Milk in a bag. Anyways, so there were, these bags were great for throwing, and so that's what I did. So I, I, I got this milk pouch, and I thought it would be funny to just like lunge this thing at, at this person. And so I got the milk pouch in my hand, and I chucked it from across the lunch area, and it came down right on him, covering him in chocolate milk. And immediately he got up and began to look around to see who it was that threw that. And I was hiding, but I could see him looking around in anger, trying to find who it was that tossed the milk. And he was huffing and puffing, 
And as he kept looking intently, suddenly his countenance changed. And his eyes started to swell up and he began to cry. And I could see how in that moment I made him feel small. Bullies gain their power by making others feel small. And it was no different then. Rome, along with all the empires before and after it, have this in common. More often than not, they bully the little people. And as Hannah mentioned a few weeks ago, by this point in Israel's history, the people have been living under military occupation. The Romans invaded Palestine in 63 BC and raised their flags. And Luke begins by setting the scene in that occupation. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus. And for anybody else who's a visual person like me, here's a photo of Caesar. It's a fantastic haircut for anybody looking for a new one. But Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor, and the Romans were the most powerful force at that time. They influenced smaller governments in different regions. Their rules and values became the norm throughout, their, uh, throughout the known world. And they had military outposts throughout their territory and could deploy a legion in an instant. And anyone who resisted its rule was either killed or imprisoned. Augustus was the head of this power, and he ordered a census. Not just to take count of how many people lived in the empire, but also to impose heavy taxes, up to 90% in some cases. See, Rome was coming down on the little people. And Mary and Joseph were caught up in this. Pregnant and traveling to be counted in this unfair census. They would have traveled in a group. Mary, being so late in the pregnancy, would have been accompanied with a midwife and others who were on their way down to Bethlehem. This is a photo of what Bethlehem looks like. Do we have that? Yep. So it's like really hilly, lots of fields, Um, and Bethlehem, the literal translation, I thought this was interesting, is the city of bread. Isn't that great? It was a small town of about 200 people, and it was a backwater village with a mixed past. It's where an instance of sexual violence sparked a devastating war between tribes, and it's also where a shepherd boy is anointed king. The journey from Nazareth in the north down to Bethlehem in the south would have taken them about a week. And as they arrived, the people, imagine this scene with me, the people were crowding around the city. It's packed, it's bustling, all the hotels and inns uh, are full, and so they get the one place that's available, a barn, with a two-star rating on Airbnb. And you know that feeling that you get when, sorry, is that just me? You guys hearing that? Is this better? I'm going to switch to this mic. Great. Check. Check. Great. All right. Here we go. Um, But you know that feeling that you get when you just miss it? 
when you miss the bus or when you arrive too late to the gig or when you're looked over or when you go online to buy that final ticket and it sells out, it all reinforces feelings of smallness. And things just got smaller for these already lowly people. We had our neighborhood Christmas dinner for the unhoused, and I was struck by how, in many cases, people, people are um, exposed to this uh, reality by various things. People are driven into homelessness, sometimes uh, for, or through legal means, or a series of bad decisions. Choices were made that resulted in bad outcomes or a lack of familial support or community structure or even just health issues. But life in general takes a toll on people and particularly on the small people. And in the Christmas story, they are the ones playing a critical role. The main story of Christmas is Jesus, surprise, It is him who makes Christmas, Christmas. But there are other supporting characters as well. And they make Jesus' arrival all the more special. And supporting characters help to magnify the main character. They help to bring um, light to the story that is unfolding. They help us to understand how powerful a story actually is. And I have to confess something. Um, I was talking about this earlier this week with someone, but I don't like Ryan Reynolds. Just like, I have no reason. I'm sure he's great, but I'm just like, it's not, not my guy, not for me. Anyways, um, because I love you, And I wanted to illustrate this next point. I watched the trailer of Free Guy. Not the movie, just the trailer. And I got all that I needed from it. But it illustrates, if you've seen the movie or the trailer, you might know what I'm talking about, but it illustrates what a supporting character can do in a film. Ryan Reynolds' character is magnified when Jodie Comer, the supporting character, steps in and gives him these magic glasses to see this digital world that they're in. And the weight of the story is realized as the supporting character brings uh, light to this digital reality that they're in. It's also Morpheus in The Matrix. His character magnifies Neo and brings light to this unfolding story. Well, the shepherds are that supporting character in this scene. The shepherds are doing their job in the field at night, and suddenly a bright light shines around them, and an angel comes with an announcement. But have you ever wondered why shepherds? Like, if you're going to make an event known, You don't post a flyer at a bulletin board in a coffee shop that people have forgotten. You go to Eventbrite or Twitter. You tell influential people about it. You go to the people with thousands of followers on TikTok. You go to those with influence. But there's a portrait being presented here, a portrait of God And we're meant to learn something about the kind of God that he is. 
Instead of going to those with influence, the announcement comes to people that have actually been unfollowed. Those in the sketchy part of the village, those with no influence. Shepherds were like the forgotten ones of their day. They had a demanding job, and it meant that they had to live outside and miss a lot of the religious events that their community was a part of. And they were usually in the field, so night and day, rain or shine, they were out there. And elites throughout the empire often viewed shepherds negatively. They were looked down on and at times even considered repulsive. And living outside meant that they were facing all kinds of dangers. They faced wolves who tried to eat their sheep. They faced thieves who tried to steal their flock. So they slept with one eye open. They were often alone and easily forgotten. But when everyone seemed to have forgotten the lowly shepherds, suddenly God's message comes to them. They get an announcement from the living God, and the announcement is this, that God is coming to them as one of them, suggesting to us that God hasn't forgotten them. This is the biggest event in the history of humanity, and, it doesn't, and the announcement doesn't go to the rich and powerful. It shows up to the forgotten shepherds. And so the beauty of Christmas is that God hasn't forgotten you. That actually, you are favored, not forgotten. That he sees you. He likes you. He loves you. See, to God, you are unforgettable. Others may have moved past you. Others may have overlooked you. They may have thought of themselves as being bigger than you. But here, we see that God comes to those that others have overlooked. And God doesn't overlook those that he loves. In L.A., we may know all too well what it feels like to be overlooked. In such a competitive city with so many gifted and beautiful people, the feeling of being overlooked may be a familiar one. And Christmas reminds us that God hasn't overlooked you, but that instead he draws near. We may have forgotten God, we may have given up on him, but in this story, we hear that he hasn't forgotten you. A group of us were speaking to someone living just down the street on Hollywood Boulevard, and they said to us that they hadn't spoken to God in so long, that life had gotten so difficult for this person, and it seemed to just crowd God away. They forgot what God was like. And in many ways, you may relate to that person. Subconsciously, we may have arrived to a place where we've forgotten him. But Christmas reminds us that Jesus hasn't forgotten you. However small we feel, however low we find ourselves, God doesn't forget you. And at the height of Israel feeling forgotten, the prophet Isaiah brings this message. This is Isaiah 49. It says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I 
will not forget you. God comes to the shepherds to remind humanity that the least of us, the smallest of us, are not despised, are not forgotten. Or as Psalms puts it, God will never forget the needy. And as we were at our event on Wednesday night, um, it was so wonderful. It was incredible to be able to spend um, time over a meal with um, our, basically our neighbors. And as people were walking away, as the night was ending, it's like something shifted. Their, their countenance was radiance. Their, their faces lit up. And I, and I think that's what happens when we realize someone sees us. When we realize that we're not invisible. When we know uh, what it's like to be seen. And this is what God does. While he doesn't forget you, he does forget our sins. God describes to the prophet Jeremiah the era or the age arriving in the Messiah. And he puts it this way. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Jesus ushers in the age of favor and forgiveness. And so you are favored, not forgotten. You are forgiven, not condemned. And this is why the angels describe Jesus' birth as good news of great joy for all people. Because Jesus comes for the kings and the shepherds. He comes for the bullies and the bullied. He arrives for the elites and the lowly. And globally speaking, most of us are in the elite category. And that can be a challenge for us because it means that we have to be willing to yield some benefits and privileges that come with status. See, the gospel is good news if we're willing to lay down our personal empires. It's bad news if we're trying to hold and build up our empires, our kingdoms. And this is why Jesus often clashed with so many religious elites in his day. See, the gospel is good news as long as we're willing to lay aside the ways that we get ahead of one another. As long as we're willing to give up our ways of socially domineering for the ways of Jesus that say, you first. For the ways of Jesus that say, love your enemy. The gospel is good news if we can give up our place of rule and our self-related paths to let Jesus be in charge. Jesus is good news for the elite category of people only if we're willing to let him lead. And when we do, it's beautiful. One of my favorite sights from Wednesday was seeing the housed and the unhoused together sharing a meal people setting aside their status to, to, to be together. And this is what Jesus calls us to. And when we get on board with him, all of this causes great joy. 
So the shepherds run to the barn and find this scene just as they were told. And they overflow with joy. And joy is a positive emotion. It flows in, a, in response to God's favor. The shepherds were given this announcement about God and his promise causes, overjoy, causes joy to overflow in them. And joy is an assurance that God is faithful. And joy is also how we endure. If we're honest, we can admit that the world can be pretty harsh. If we allow that to set the temperature of our day to day, then we can easily become anxious, bitter, self-preserving. But joy persists in the harshest of circumstances because it depends on God and his promise. Joy is unlike happiness, which says, if what is happening to me is good, then I will be happy. But joy, on the other hand, says, even if what is happening to me is harsh, God is still good. God is still faithful. Joy says, when people insult me and speak falsely about me, I will rejoice because ultimately God's got me. And I, I think this means that our capacity for offense needs to be off the charts. If we're just around people who always compliment and agree with us, then we may be missing Jesus' instruction. Jesus says, when you're offended, rejoice because you're in good company. Do you remember the things that Jesus was called? Can you imagine the things that Mary was called? When we let offense triumph over love, our joy evaporates. And so don't let others steal your joy. It is a gift from God. Joy is yours. You are destined for joy. God has set you up for joy. Isaiah says this, you will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown your heads Gladness and joy will overtake you, and the sorrow and sign will flee away. Joy is ahead for you. God sets you up for joy. But I think this also raises a question. Can joy and sorrow coexist? If I'm feeling sorrowful, am I forfeiting joy? Or does feeling sorrow suggest that I'm doing something wrong? In the West, we are still pretty dualistic. We seem to be getting away from it, but it still, for the most part, frames the way that we think. But the world of the Bible isn't that, and sometimes I, I, I struggle to, to, to get into that. Um, it's something that we have to be aware of when we come to the world of the Bible, that it's not so dualistic in their thinking. And here we get a portrait of Jesus, who was the most joyful person, yet knew sorrow. The Bible calls him 
in Isaiah 53. It says, the man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. Paul describes his experience following Jesus, and he says, I'm summer, kind of summarizing here, but he says, now is the time of God's favor. We endured everything. We are beaten and yet not killed. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Sorrow and joy can coexist. And if I'm honest, I don't know what that means. Maybe it means we can stop taking ourselves so seriously. We can ease off on feeling the need to be happy all the time. Maybe it means that God is actually okay with our range of emotions. And it also suggests that joy can come from bringing our sorrow to the one who is faithful. Paul writes this from prison. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. It is a safeguard for you. I mean, if I were in prison, I would not be writing that. But joy can come from bringing our grief and our sorrow to the one who comforts. To rejoice is to be glad in what God has done, in what God is doing, and in what God will do. Do you know what rejoicing is like? It's like those booster tracks in a Hot Wheels set. Do you remember those? It's like just as the car is starting to like slow down and come to a stop, it reaches a booster and it gets momentum. It, the, it hits the This is fun, like switching mics and you never know what you're gonna get. But rejoicing is like hitting those booster tracks and being propelled forward again when we're tired of waiting, when we feel our faith getting stagnant, when we're in the fields, we rejoice in the Lord, we hit the booster and the spirit propels us forward again. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. What do you think happened to the shepherds after this scene? I was thinking about that. Luke tells us that they returned to their flocks, but it's not quite what I want in a story. I want the shepherds to have gotten to the manger put on gold robes, and tend to Jesus' every need. I want them to be his crew and roll with him everywhere, maybe in a G-Wagon. But that's not what happens. Instead, they return to the fields, and they likely never saw Jesus enter his ministry. Isn't that wild? For them, that one night was it. 
It's all they had to go off of. It was a reference point for joy. And so what is your reference point? What is your reference point for joy? Consider what God has done. Often we assume that we're destined for the manger moments. We assume that the angelic, heavenly choir moments are the pinnacle of faith. But the real work of Christmas happens in the fields, in the ordinary, when the holidays have passed, when when we come back home, when we return, that's where joy makes a difference. That's where the work of Christmas happens. As long as we're in the fields, as long as we're in the ordinary, as long as we're in the mundane, we're destined for joy. I was in Michigan this summer, and I did the uh, eulogy for my brother-in-law's wedding. Not the eulogy. That's for a funeral. <laughs> Thought about that, and I was like, there were no coffins. Did the ceremony for my brother-in-law's wedding. And uh, while we were there in Michigan, we stayed for some time, and we went to this art gallery in one of the bigger cities in Grand Rapids, and this piece caught my eye. It's a quote by Howard Thurman, a black theologian in the 20th century, and he writes this, when the song of the angel is stilled, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among others, to make music in the heart. So as we end and go into the new year, as we enter the fields of 2023, post-Christmas, post-New Year's, as we go back to work, back to the ordinary, let us choose joy. In that place, the work of Christmas begins. The work of the Spirit to find the lost, to heal the sick, to rebuild, to bring peace. This is the joy-bringing stuff of the Spirit. This is what we're after. And so let us, like the shepherds, return with joy singing and praising God for the work that will be done in our midst. We're going to sing a song, and if we're feeling sorrowful, let us bring that to Him. And if we're feeling unsure about the new year, let us come and remember that God is faithful, that God is good. And so would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song and then we will pray for people in the front.